and this is what I say a lot when people talk about despair versus hope, right? It is this same thing with the with the planting seeds versus changing someone's mind. It's about framing and it's about the orientation we have. If we want to look at all of the horrible things that are happening in the world, we can do that because there's a lot of horrible things happening in the world. We can also look at all of the amazing things happening in this world, the good things that are happening, the good things that just are, but also the good things that are happening because good people want to do the right thing. And we can find that too. It's a matter of which orientation we want to have. Both are true, but it's what we want to focus on. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 248. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hi, veggie lovers. Welcome back to another episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. Well, this is my last episode with my background not looking as good. So hopefully, because my project is in two days, is to get my office in order. So I can't wait for you to see it once it's looking much better. But you can see in the background, if you're looking on YouTube, I have my little black bean and my little cashew there and then my cool LED light. So at least we have that. But this episode is so good, y'all. I have Colleen Patrick Goudreau. She's amazing. I love her. She's so wise and so just inclusive. I love how inclusive she is and how compassionate she is, not just for the animals, but for other humans. And we have such a fantastic conversation. So let me tell you more about Colleen. So Colleen Patrick Goudreau is a recognized expert and thought leader on the culinary, social, ethical, and practical aspects of living compassionately and healthfully. Colleen Patrick Goudreau is an award-winning author of seven books, including the best-selling The Joy of Vegan Baking, The Vegan Table, Color Me Vegan, Vegan's Daily Companion, The 30-Day Vegan Challenge, and The Joyful Vegan. She is an acclaimed speaker and host of the inspiring podcast, Food for Thought, which she said she's had, did she say it was 17 years? It's been a long time. It's like, you should go check this podcast out, okay? And a short run spinoff podcast, Animology, which is also the title of her TEDx talk. She also co-founded the political action committee, East Bay Animal Pack, to work with government officials on animal issues in the San Francisco Bay Area. And she also hosts sustainable vegan trips around the world. We didn't even get to talk about the trips, but that would have been fun to talk about. We had a wonderful conversation. So we talked about her vegan journey, how it evolved over time. We talked about animal advocacy, what it means to be an advocate and how she practices advocacy. 
I asked her if she believes that there's hope for animals in the world. You're going to love her answer. We talk about animologies. What are animologies? We talk about what she believes is the biggest barrier to people adopting a vegan lifestyle. Is there such a thing as a perfect vegan? Then we talk a little bit about food and her morning routine, which sounds amazing. And this is just a really great heart-to-heart conversation. I learned several things. I feel like she gives just a really good insight into how to think about it, especially if you're somebody who is on their vegan journey and you're still learning about being vegan and how to interact with other people and yourself in this non-vegan world, you're gonna love this episode. Thank you so much, veggie lovers, for being here and sharing this time with me. I appreciate you so much. Welcome to all my new listeners. Please stick around. Check out my other episodes and share with friends and family. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And now let's welcome Colleen Patrick Goudreau. Colleen Patrick Goudreau, such a pleasure and honor to have you on Veggie Doctor Radio. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, I have to tell you that you were present at the very beginning of my vegan journey in two ways. So when I first went vegan, I only knew one other vegan. So she gave me my first set of books, which Diet for a New America was one of them. And then after I made it official to the world, one of my coworkers bought me the, what was it? The one Color Me Vegan, the cookbook. And then I bought the journal one, the one that was the daily reflections. I forget what that one's called. And I just remember at the beginning, every morning waking up, and sitting with my little daily reflections and reading about it. And from the beginning, talking to my husband about some of these animologies that we're gonna talk about before. So one of of the ones that has stuck with us that we always use is cutting two carrots with one knife. So (laughs) I can't wait to get into that, but thank you for being part of my journey. Thank you for letting me be part of your journey. It's really an honor. I mean it when I say that, it's just because especially when we don't know who we touch, when we do the work we do, right? Put the work out there and and to hear that, that it did touch someone is like the icing on the cake because I... I just put it out there and just, you know, hope for the best. And so when I hear that it has been helpful for people, it it means a lot. Awesome. And yeah, I'm going on 12 years of being vegan. So it was quite a while ago. But I want to hear about your story. Enough about me. Tell me about your vegan journey. Yeah, it's so similar, I think, to a lot of people's journeys. It's, you know, the details are different, but I think we all have this journey of I was asleep, I encountered something, I became awake, right? And so mine specifically was I was the kid who loved animals. I lived in a home where I ate animals all the time. I was raised with all sorts of animal products. My father owned ice cream stores. We had a separate freezer just for ice cream. We had candy, dairy, everything, right? I mean, so just in every way. I mean, in that pretty typical. I mean, we ate meat all the time. And I was also the kid who loved animals. I was incredibly empathic. I could not stand if I saw any you know, stray animal or an animal suffering. And my parents indulged it. They really supported it. I think like most parents do, especially with children. And I think there is a little bit of this, oh, how sweet, how sweet, how sweet. They, oh, She loves animals. And for me, there's a depth of that 
which is compassion. And I think, well, we can talk about that because I think what happens is we get older, that perception of, oh, how sweet becomes, all right, that's a little too sentimental, right? And so we, we, we take it and we make it a negative thing. And so even as your child, you start to be desensitized to that compassion or it becomes dulled. It just becomes a little less prominent. And it was prominent for me as a child. And I think it's prominent for most children, uh, especially when there's just this desire to, you know, to connect with this, these other beings. And so I ate animals until I read Diet for New America. That was the book for me that opened my eyes to begin with. And it was the first time I had ever heard about anything that happened to the animals who, because, you know, when I was growing up and mind you, like all of us, right, you don't have to love animals to identify with this story, but I'm sure that most people listening could identify with, you had stuffed animals on your bed, you read books and were read books that had animals as the main characters, you, you watched movies where animals were the main characters, you were taught to read and spell and count using animals as your guides, you had pajamas and clothing with animals all over them. You dressed up as animals for Halloween. You sang songs about animals. In every way, we're encouraged to have these connections with animals. And then we're being fed the animals at the same time. And when we question it, as we start to be aware of it, we're all told the same kinds of things. Oh, they're here for us. They don't feel pain. All the things that we need to tell ourselves to not feel bad about this this dissonance that we experience, right? This cognitive dissonance, which is, I love animals. And yet, in eating animals, they're being harmed and I would never harm another animal. So that was my story. And, and the compassion, I still had the compassion by the time I read Diet for New America at 19, but it was dulled. It was blocked. It was conditional. I love the dogs, but I eat the cows, right? So all of those things, I think a lot of people can identify with. And I read Diet for New America and it was like a ton of bricks had fallen on me because I hadn't ever seen or looked at these things. And I believed the stories that I had been told because I had to, because I liked meat, because <laughs> I liked ice cream, because I liked eggs. I mean, whatever it was, right? And so that was the first step for me. I didn't become fully awake, but I definitely woke up. I continued eating dairy and eggs and made excuses. You know, I was buying organic. I was buying free range because, again, we have to frame the harm so that we can feel okay about it. And I, the, ironically, you know, I know there's a lot of there's a lot of frustration for people who've had their awakening and hear about non-vegans who do that, who have to, you know, couch their harmful behavior in positive ways. But I actually look at it as a positive thing. If we didn't feel the compassion, we wouldn't have the struggle. <laughs> so it's actually a positive thing that we have to be willfully blind, right? And so I continued reading books and eventually a um, few years later became vegan. The book that put me over was a book called Slaughterhouse. And it was the it was a book by an investigative journalist who went to slaughterhouses and talked to the workers. And it was then that I realized, whereas with Die for New America, for me, it was how animals were being bred and raised and killed. And when I read Slaughterhouse, the thing that was so upsetting to me was Number one, that animals were being bred and raised and killed because it's the most macabre business model you could think of, <laughs> bringing animals into the world only to take them out of it, right? But what struck me, and it, it has guided my work, compassion has guided my work, and the idea that we create a culture of violence and slaughterhouses and all of this, these industries 
they're cultures of violence. And it was then that I realized, oh my God, I'm like paying these men, mostly men, some women who work in slaughterhouses to be desensitized to their own compassion, to be desensitized to the animal suffering. And I can't be part of this. Like I do not want to be, I would never do the things that were being done. I would never be able to do them directly. So how could I pay someone to do it? And it was that clear it was very painful. It was a very painful immer immersion into awareness. And I think births usually are messy and painful, <laughs> right? Um, but that's what it was for me. And so I became vegan at that moment. And, you know, when people say I became vegan overnight, we don't become vegan overnight. All these things lead up to the moment we have the final awakening. So that was my final awakening. And I do say, and I don't say this to be, to be cutesy, but I, I do say that I didn't become vegan as much as I removed the blocks to the compassion that was already inside of me. And that has guided me not only as a vegan myself, but as an advocate, because I do believe that everybody's compassionate. They're not cruel and evil. I wasn't cruel and evil when I was eating animal products, but my compassion was blocked. And so becoming vegan is just like removing that wall, removing all of that, the, the stuff and the muck and the blocks to the thing that is the most beautiful thing in us as human beings. And that is our empathy and our compassion. And so uh, that's why I call myself a joyful vegan, because how there's nothing better than living in a way that that nurtures that and allows that to shine. Doesn't mean there's not pain. It doesn't mean there's not sadness, but that's different than living my life by the core of my being, which is my, my compassion. So that's, that's my story. Uh, thank you for sharing that. At the beginning, though, do you feel like, because I feel like it's very common to hear stories that when you have this awakening, you feel a lot of anger. And that's when we become like these like, you know, militant vegans, <laughs> just, just like telling everybody to stop eating meat. Do you feel like you went through that process too at the beginning? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's the short version, right? As I reflected on my own story and on the stories of the people I've heard from over the last couple decades, uh, anger is one of the stages that I talk about in, uh, in this journey we go through because, you know, there's the journey of becoming vegan and then there's the journey of being vegan. The journey doesn't end when we become vegan. There's a new journey. And so part of that journey includes anger. Absolutely. You know, I, the, the stages I talk about in The Joyful Vegan, the first stage is the, you know, is the, oh my God, how could I not have known, right? And then the second stage is how could I have been part of it? And the third stage is coming out and being able to at least own this identity um, and so on and so on. And anger is one of those stages. Evangelism is four because we want to tell everybody about what we've learned. And then anger follows that because no one's done anything. How can no one care? This is awful. People are terrible. How can you not see what I see? And so that's part of what that anger is, right? And so I think we all do go through that, especially people who you know, who make the change for ethical reasons, but it happens there for health reasons as well. How could I not have been told that, you know, the meat I was eating caused my cancer or, you know, contributed to my heart disease or et cetera, et cetera, right? There's, or my family member's sickness, same thing, right? So anger is part of that 
journey as well. And so, yes, anger is absolutely part of it. And so what I talk about in my work is how to how to think about the anger. And I, I used the word before. I do believe that anger is the surface, that underneath it is the sorrow, and that we socially accept anger more than we accept sorrow. So imagine if we immediately got to what it really was about, which is, this is so painful, this is so sad, and we cry. We, I hear people say all the time, like, how do I talk about animal issues without crying? And I'm like, just cry. <laughs> like, connect with the person you're talking to. It's okay if you get sad, but it's more socially acceptable to be angry. And so I think we overcorrect and the sorrow that we need to feel gets displaced by the anger. And that can be detrimental, obviously. Now, there's, you know, in, in the stages that I talk about, obviously part of what I'm trying to do is also help you through the stage to get on the other side of it and understand that anger is certainly a motivator and and is a good motivator, can be, absolutely. The problem is when the anger is the end as opposed to the means to the end. Uh, and so we can feel passionate and we can feel motivated and we can feel angry. But if that becomes, you know, our identity and that becomes how, you know, the lens through which we see the world, that's where it's dangerous. So I think we all go through it, but we don't have to stay stuck in it. Yeah. Uh, those are such great insights. Thank you for sharing that and for sharing your work with us too, because I think at the beginning, it is so painful. <laughs> Sometimes I've seen people and some of my friends and some of my relationships where the pain actually caused them to turn completely away from it because it was too much for them to even think about. So I think knowing that there is a way through it, there's a way to use that journey to help make you a stronger vegan is good for people to know that you're not just going to feel like this deep pain all the time forever, you know, and be in that really uncomfortable place of anger and sorrow. So I think that leads me to my next question, which is your animal advocacy. You're such a devoted animal advocate. So tell me what that means to you and how that has looked and evolved over time. Mm. Well, the word advocate comes from the word vocare, which means voice, right? And so for me, my advocacy is about being a voice for compassion, a voice for animals, a voice for a joyful vegan life. And so that has always been what felt really natural to me and felt really authentic for me because I, I've always naturally wanted to do the right thing and, 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 and bring others on board, right? It's sharing the, it's sharing the news. I mean, that's what evangelism actually means is sharing the good news, right? And so there's nothing wrong with wanting to do that. It's just doing it in a way that is sustainable for you and effective <laughs> for, for the cause. So if, for me, it's always been outreach and writing and communication and teaching, and that's just what I feel comfortable with. So I started as soon as I be, I mean, really, I was an advocate before I was vegan. I was working on issues related to vegetarianism and vivisection and, you know, zoos and circuses and that kind of thing. But when I became vegan, the focus really became a lot on what we eat and who we eat. And so I very quickly took to the streets and was doing outreach and raising awareness and showing you know, meet your meat on the streets and, and 
what I found very quickly, and I was tabling and I was talking to the public, is very quickly that people said, you know, would show up with, you know, tears and they'd be watching this just the way I did and have the same reaction, like, I don't want to be part of this, but what do I do? And everyone started asking the questions that we all hear and we all asked, which is, what do I eat? And what about protein? And what about my family? And what about travel? And how about the holidays? And how do I do this? And uh, and how do I navigate this? And so you know, I, I just wanted to be able to fill those gaps for people. And so, you know, I wasn't trained in the culinary arts, but I knew enough to feel confident to start teaching cooking classes. So I started teaching cooking classes. And so with my master's in English literature, that's what any parent who worries <laughs> that their child has a master's in English literature, you just teach cooking classes. Uh, <laughs> so, so I like, I still love teaching cooking. I have, I, I've been doing it online, but I mean, those early days, and I taught them for 15 years. I mean, I taught them in person for a long time. Just using that as an opportunity when people are in this space of openness and their bellies are being filled and they're enjoying the food, it's a safe place to be able to talk about the issues in a in a way that's effective. I always say, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? So I'd be able to talk about dairy cows, but in a very safe way, in a very playful way for people. And I just love that. I love finding the ways to talk to people about the things they're concerned about and and just planting enough seeds that I can walk away and say, I did my job, which was not to convert, which was not to change someone's mind. My job was to raise awareness and speak my truth and be their voice. And I can walk away from every single situation I'm in. I was I got my got a manicure yesterday for my birthday. And so I was talking to the women who were um who who are at the salon I go to, and they were asking all sorts sorts of questions about veganism. And I love those moments because I love finding the in to just plant those seeds and walk away and say, I did my job and I'm successful at it. So my advocacy has always been that kind of outreach, taught the cooking classes, started the podcast, produced a DVD, wrote my first book, wrote the books following that. And I'm still doing that, finding ways that I can use my unique voice to effectively and authentically speak up for animals. And so it shows up as different mediums, but it's always the same thing. And that's what I try and convey to people who are, you know, part of one of the stages is how do I get involved? What's my role? Where do I, where can I, you know, be effective? The answer is what do you love and what are you good at? Like start there. And that's what I've always done in my own advocacy and continue to do. I love it. And happy birthday, by the way. <laughs> so yeah, I think you're right too, though. I feel I feel like food is a good entry point for almost anybody because humans love food and we love eating and it makes us happy. So I think cooking classes, I've also taught cooking classes, I'm going to be starting them again soon. I think it's a really good way where people are more relaxed and they're open to information. But I like how you contrasted that of, I'm not what I, my goal is not to convert people, it's to raise awareness. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. 
A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. Which is a great way to look at it because I talk to my clients too about the difference between things that you can do versus things you can't control, right? So we may not be able to control who's going to actually go vegan, but we can just do the thing. We can start educating. We can start putting content out there. We can, and and, you know, it can be in the personality type that you are. Like some people are going to be more forceful and bold and other people are going to use a different approach, but just start putting it out there. I think that's the most important thing. So thank you for bringing that up. So how many years have you been vegan now and doing this work? 24. Wow. That's a long time. So given the time that you've been in this world, do you believe that there is hope for animals? Well, hundred percent. I am, I am, I am, a, look, I am a consummate optimist. It's just kind of built into my DNA and I feed that. I, you know, I intentionally nurture that, but I do, I am a hopeful person. And this is what I say a lot when people talk about despair versus hope, right? It is this same thing with the, with the planting seeds versus changing someone's mind. It's about framing and it's about the orientation we have. If we want to look at all of the horrible things that are happening in the world, we can do that because there's a lot of horrible things happening in the world. We can also look at all of the amazing things happening in this world, the good things that are happening, the good things that just are, but also the good things that are happening because good people want to do the right thing. And we can find that too. It's a matter of which orientation we want to have. Both are true, but it's what we want to focus on. And so I do focus on the hope because there's a lot of hope out there. That doesn't mean I don't get sad. That doesn't mean I don't get angry. That doesn't mean I don't, you know, feel you know, like I want to, you know, of course, just change everything and shake everyone right now. Right. I just know that's not effective. And I know that's not sustainable for me and my happiness uh, because that's important for us as well. It's also just not true. Like, I just think that we can, we can use a lot of different measurements. It's, it's really up to us, which barometers we want to use. Right. And so 
if we look at history and we take any kind of, you know, um, measurement, if we look at whether it's wildlife or, you know, farmed animals or people's perception of farmed animals, right? Depending on the measurement we use, we can find that there has always been the movement toward where we are today, which is, which is people care and they want to do the right thing. Now, you could argue that farmed animals are worse off today than they've ever been. And I would say yes, because of technology and industrialization of the food system, right? But if you look at people's perception of animals and that they want to do the right thing and they don't want animals harmed and they want there to be laws to protecting animals, then those are, you compare that to 50 years ago, you compare that to 100 years ago and beyond, that's an that's an entirely different thing. And, and people do want animals protected, right? So my point is, I have hope, and it's a matter of whether we choose to have hope or not, and it, it's a matter of whether we want to look at what is right in the world. It's very tempting, and I think it's very popular to look at how awful things are and to just be in despair and to just blame everybody. And and literally, this pessimism and the cynicism that I think is 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 sadly contagious, and and sadly, I think a, a bit you know of the zeitgeist. And I don't, I don't share it. I don't share it. I find cynicism incredibly boring and incredibly um, just uninteresting. <laughs> and so, uh, so it's really a matter, uh, it's a matter of us and our perception and what we want to focus on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally with you. I know that for my own personality too, that if I focus on all the negative things, that's all my brain thinks that exists. And then I sink into a deep depression, which is ineffective for a lot of reasons. And so it's not, it's not, not helpful, but you know, I love that focusing on amplifying the positive, but you also made such a good point about the difference between the state of just the sheer number of animals that are suffering right now versus what is the public perception of animals. And that is exactly why these big industrial corporations don't want people to know and why they work so hard to cover up what's actually happening behind closed doors because they know also that once consumers find out, they will start to change their behaviors, right? And so it's really, really important for them to not let people know what actually is happening. And so I think that's a really good point in that yeah, we're seeing some positive trends. Now, how can we bring these two together so that we can actually start making changes in a way that hopefully benefits everybody? Um, Because right now it is kind of like these corporations protecting themselves from harm because they know that if people knew the reality, it would change their business. Exactly 100%. So one of the, the 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 first chapter in the joyful vegan is on willful blindness and how everyone around us wants us to stay willfully blind that's the corporations who are making the money off of the products that we buy it's our families who don't want to change the dynamic we have it's our schools who don't want to change the curricula they've already got in place it's ourselves who are afraid of what's on the other side all in all these ways we are in this like collective shared blindness of like, don't tell me I don't want to know. And this is the thing though. This is where, again, I can't help seeing this as a positive thing. It's our compassion that compels the corporations, as you said, to 
basically trick us and, you know, use a lot of really interesting tactics and marketing language employees and all of that. Right. But we do it too. And we, we, we say, yes, lie to me, please keep lying to me. Right. So we are participants in this. And so again, for me, the don't tell me, I don't want to know the hopeful part of that is people know that as soon as they know the truth, they are going to be compelled to make a change. They're going to be compelled to do the right thing. So they, they know it's there. They know the compassion is there. And what I think my personal opinion, my theory is it's not being vegan that's scary. It's not the, oh God, I'm going to be vegan. Don't tell me. It's the unknown. It's the, I don't know what that's going to look like. It's the, that's not familiar to me. It's that that's not part of my family. I mean, this is, we can talk about that because of course it, it is, you're eating vegetables too. Um, but it's not part of my heritage. It's not part of my culture. It's not part of my religion. It's not part of my identity. It's not part of all these things. And so, so who am I going to be and how are people going to respond and what am I going to eat and where am I going to go and what's vegan food, right? All these things, the unknowns. And that's what I think people are afraid of. Don't tell me what I want to know because I don't know what's going to happen on the other side of that awareness. And that to me is the hopeful part. And that's why we have to hear people when they say, I'm scared because I love, I love eating chicken so much. And what am I going to do without it? And when a vegan advocate says, oh, that's ridiculous. God, they obviously care more about what they eat than they do about the chickens. It's like, wow, you just missed an opportunity there because they're telling you what it is they're afraid of. And you can speak to that as opposed to this desire that they see the world the way you do. Right. So that's what drives me a little crazy about the indignance of, you know, the indignancy, indignancy, uh, indignance of, of advocates who, who, who just don't hear you know, the, 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 the pre-vegan, the non-vegan, the not vegan yet, that they're compassionate, but it's blocked people when they, when they really say, this is what I'm concerned about. And if you just write that off and just write them off as being uncaring, uncompassionate people, we just miss so many opportunities to really speak to people's concerns. Oh, that's so lovely. And it made me think about, I'm a big supporter of these meat alternatives for that very reason is because I feel like it lowers that barrier to entry for so many people because it's familiar, you know, it doesn't look different, it tastes, feels the same, but then they take away that the animal portion of it, which is going to align with some of the goals that people have as they start to transition. But I see the same thing in the community too. It's like, we didn't have those, they're so unhealthy, it's just junk food, da, 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 da. And I'm like, listen, what are our goals here? And remember that everybody's in a different stage in their journey. <laughs> and at the beginning, when you've lived your whole life a certain way, because really as Americans, we only eat like the same eight meals over and over again. Yeah, so totally. if you've lived the same way the whole your whole life and you don't know what to do, it it does make it scary. So thank you for bringing that up. And I think that that's also a way that we can practice compassion to our yeah. fellow humans and meeting them where they are for, for this collective improvement, <laughs> you know, in our world. All right. Well, let's change gears for a little bit because I definitely want to cover this. And since you're the English major, let's talk about <laughs> animologies because that is really kind of an interesting and fun thing that a lot of people don't even think about how our language affects our thoughts and our behaviors. I think so. I think it does. I think it affects it and it reflects it. And so, you know, I am not in any way a, you know, someone who 
says that we should speak a certain way and only use, I'm not a prescriptivist. Like I'm not someone who says you should talk this way and don't use these words. I am someone who, again, wants to just kind of raise awareness about the language we use when it comes to animals and, 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 and to encourage people to ask themselves, are the words I'm using and are the expressions I'm using and is the language I'm using reflecting what I really believe and think? and care about. And so when you look at some of the language we use, you know, we can talk about euphemisms that we did. I mean, we kind of touched on that a little bit with the industries we'll do to make us feel better and the euphemisms we use to make us feel better about what we're doing. And this is outside of even just, you know, eating animals, right? This is in many, many ways. We have euphemisms for so many different areas in our lives as humans, war and, you know, violence and, you know, abuse. I mean, we have like a lot of <laughs> euphemisms. So there's euphemisms. There there's um, there's a lot of different ways to look at this, and there are expressions we use that do reflect violence against animals. Obvious ones, you kind of alluded to the one that is a very popular one, the kill two birds with one stone. I have to actually always think about it because I have been using the compassionate version for so long that I actually have to go, what was the original? Because it's so horrible. Um, and so it's just a question of like, Okay, so does that reflect, you know, and when you use the compassionate version with people and it has the same rhythm and it has the same meaning, but it's not obviously, you know, status quo yet. It's not part of people's vernacular. People go, you know, if you say cut two carrots with one knife, they go, what? What did you do? Right. Because like, oh, wow. Yeah. Kidding. Two birds with a stone. That's hard. Wow. And they reflect on it, right? So I don't correct people. I mean, I do in a playful way if someone says cut two, kill two birds with one stone. And they're, and usually in the presence of an animal advocate or a vegan, they'll go, wait, what do I say instead of that? Wait, what do I, right? Because they're now being aware. There's a mirror held up and they're being aware of their language. And I'll say, yeah, cut two carrots with one knife or whatever the alternatives are. And it's not to say that these are going to necessarily catch on. I hope they do. Maybe they will. But it's to reflect back what we're saying and how we're saying it. Now, there are lots of positive expressions as well, and there are lots of ways we do honor animals, and those have to be uh, honored as well. I think, again, the, the, you know, we get a little caught up in and overcorrect when we just say, Every, all of our language is horrible. We should change everything we ever say about animals. And I'm like, well, no, we actually, what we want to do is just make sure that we're using language that, for me, it, uh, inspires and reflects compassion and kindness and connection versus violence and and othering for other animals. So it's an experiment. It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing process in having these conversations with ourselves and with people around us. And it's exciting and I love it. And I'm always paying attention. You know, we've already talked about framing and, you know, how we talk about things, how we talk about anything changes the way we think about those things. And so it's, it's a really important exercise, I think, in our daily lives to just be mindful of the language we're using about really everything. It's yeah. Buddha's concept, right? Right speech is just, you know, what language am I using that because it's putting out there in the world, whatever it is I'm saying, and it's also penetrating my own consciousness. And so how how do I want to speak in a way that reflects compassion and goodness and kindness and and, and what I believe? Yeah, those that neurocycle linguistics is a real thing. And I think it does require mindfulness and awareness and sensitivity. And I'll just say that to the listeners, we're not perfect about this, right? And I think we learn to speak at such a young age and it just becomes the way things are and we don't think about it. So at the beginning, 
you are going to say things that afterwards you're like, wow, okay, I guess maybe I don't want to say it that way anymore. Or somebody might point out, like I've said sayings on this podcast that some of my amazing listeners have messaged me afterwards and been like, you may not want to say that. Or if you, when you say that, it's a little bit offensive. And it's just like this old saying that I didn't even think about because to me, it's like, it's almost like a character. It has like a significance and I've already not paid attention to what the actual words are anymore, you know? So once we start paying attention to those words and become more sensitive, I think that's another way to connect to our compassion, but also project that out to the world. So Thank you for for talking about this concept. I think it's it's such an amazing concept to discuss. Well, in your experience, what is the biggest barrier to people adopting a vegan lifestyle? We touched on that a little bit in terms of identity and people thinking that being vegan is somehow anathema to who they already are or the background they have or the family they're in. So in terms of a barrier to becoming vegan. I think that's a big part of it. And, and related to that is the social aspects. So I do think that we humans, vegans, advocates, et cetera, underestimate how social we are. And so again, I'm bringing up the cranky vegans who are very critical of the people who stop being vegan because we can learn a lot from people who stop being vegan. We can learn a lot. And you hear the criticism of people who stop being vegan. I have a lot to say about this, but we only have a short time and that's why I have my own podcast. No, Uh, but I I do want to hear this because honestly, this is difficult for me. tell people all the time i don't i don't go around judging people because they're not vegan but when i hear people used to be vegan and they're no longer vegan that's a tough one for me that is really tough so i'd love to hear more of your thoughts on this one (laughs) and i do have a podcast i have several podcast episodes on it one in particular i talked about i never talk about celebrities because i don't live in that world i just and i don't talk about other people because their lives are their own but i did one where i talked about miley cyrus it was a bit of clickbait because it was you know everyone went nuts when she talked about how she wasn't vegan anymore. So I do have an episode specifically, you can find that. Um, and I think that might be helpful because, because there's a lot to say. So so what I'm trying to get at is we, the cranky vegans, you know, who hear people who become, who stop being vegan, they really underestimate that, that when people feel disconnected from their tribe, and they feel criticized by the tribe and they feel they're they're not part of it anymore that is like integral to who we are as homo sapiens like it is integral to be part of a tribe and if we feel that the thing we're doing let's say becoming vegan is the thing that separates us from the the people we once were most connected to we're going to see that as the barrier to that connection. And we're going to find a way to stop being vegan that justifies it so that we feel better about it. And it's usually going to be some kind of like, oh, I wasn't feeling great. Oh, you know, I heard this the other day. I, Whenever I stop eating meat, my skin gets saggy. And I'm like, what? Uh, okay. And she was like, I'm 80% vegan. I'm like, well, I doubt that like, you know, if you're already 80% vegan, that like whatever else, you know, you stop eating is really, right? But we have to couch it that way, again, to feel better because we don't want to just say, eh, eh, this is more important, right? That, that, you know, I want to go out to dinner with my friends. But what's really happening underneath that, and I'm using the social aspects as an example because I think it's a really powerful one. And I think it's where people struggle the most. 
And so, so I think the, the social aspects. Now, what that means is as the vegan, I do think there's a lot of things we can do better when we become vegan. And I think some of that has to do with us showing up and standing up for who we are without worrying about how other people are going to take it. Because I think when people become vegan initially, especially there's the, oh my God, do you guys know this? I found this out. And like you become this, you know, evangelist and you're passionate. And then everyone around you is like, oh God, like, oh God, please, we don't hear about it anymore and whatever. Fine, fine, fine. Freaking, you know, whatever. Right. So, but yeah, and, and we have to navigate through that. And I talk about how to navigate through that, about how to navigate through still being passionate without being, you know, without trying to convert people or what have you, and also remaining unattached to how people respond to you. So there's a lot to do around that communication skills, all that strategies and finesse and the artistry of that. Right. And there's also the other side of it where people will become vegan and go to a restaurant or, or tell someone they're vegan. And because of the negative reaction they get, they start to play small and they start to go, I don't want to, I don't want to even say I'm vegan anymore because I had a bad experience. Okay. What does it look like then if you show up and say, I'm a proud vegan, you know, hi, I'm vegan. Could you just tell me what you have on your menu? That's vegan. Thanks so much. And like when you show up in a different way, people then will react differently. But if we show up like, I know this is awful. I'm just like a pain. I know I don't want to be a pain. No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'll have the salad. And we play small, then we're going to have a negative response from people. So, you know, the answer isn't waiting for someone else to have a better response to us. The answer is showing up, being proud about the thing you do that is obviously so important to you, that's reflecting your deepest values, and just not worrying about how someone else responds to you. It's a different story to say, go be a jerk and like go hit someone over the head about being vegan. I'm not saying that. I'm saying be who you are and know where you end and another person begins. So a lot of this is just the social interactions and kind of basic human psychology that I think we need to talk more about as advocates, not, not they care or they don't. And that's where I get so apoplectic when I see responses and comments on posts about things like this, where people go, well, they just weren't vegan. Well, that's convenient. That's so convenient to just say they were never vegan to begin with. No, we have to look at what people struggle with as legitimately being vegan. <laughs> and that makes them compelled to go back to doing something that they don't want to do. They really were compelled to like eat better, feel better, not hurt animals, right? So we got to find out what those things are and help people because the good news, again, on the other side of it is that the like I think the it's like 40% of people who say they stop being vegetarian or vegan say they want to go back. But if we're basically orienting to like, no, we don't want you because you failed and you, you, know, you didn't do it right and you weren't vegan to begin, well, who wants to be part of that? I wouldn't. But if we go, oh, where were you struggling? How can I help? I think we could do a lot better as advocates, but I'm also saying this to say, as the vegan, we can do a lot better to not play small, to be proud and to know where we end and another person begins. So there's a lot there. Uh, yeah, that's all so good. That's mm -hmm. really great information and things to take to heart as well. I agree with all of that. Hey, are you kind of curious about microgreens and including microgreens in your diet, but you're not sure where to start and you're not sure how to do it? I love my Hamama microgreen 
grower. It's so easy. It's so convenient. So this is how it works. Basically, they send you the kit and it has this little seed quilt, okay? And then you soak the seed quilt in the water. And in a few days, you see your tiny little baby sprouts growing. And a few days after that, you can start eating them. And it's so fun. And you can tell them that you're eating them. And they're really happy that you're eating them. And your body's really happy that you're eating them. But here's the best part, because I've told y'all before, I'm lazy. So I don't want to have to use any mental energy that I don't need to. And they send you seed quilts every month. So you don't run out. You can change what seed quilts you want to try. So here's some examples of some of the seed quilts they have. Hearty broccoli, refreshing cabbage, energizing kale, spicy daikon radish, super salad mix. You can even get wheatgrass. You can get culinary cilantro or even hot wasabi mustard. So there's lots to choose from. They have different flavors. They're so cute and they're health promoting. So you can get a good dose of antioxidants and it's really beautiful. I also use them for garnish when I'm making soups and salads and different bowls. You can impress your guests. But like I said, it's going to be low energy cost on your part. And it's actually not that expensive either. The other thing that I use from Hamama is a green onion growing kit, which is really cool because it can decrease your food waste. So you buy the green onions and then the little part that has the root, the white part at the bottom, you stick it in these little holes and you just put the water in there and it grows. And then you can keep eating the same green onions. You just go with your little scissors and you chop it off and you put it into your food. So if you want to give it a try, you've been curious about microgreens and different ways that you can grow your own food, check out Hamama. You can find it in my show notes for a link to get 15% off, or you can go to dryami.com forward slash shop so that you can find the link and get 15% off your first order. Happy growing. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you want to join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. Yeah, I think one of the things, like I've thought about this, why does it bother me so much? Like, I don't even know because, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not like a judgy person in general, (laughs) but I feel like to me, the reason it bothers me is because it almost feels like a threat to like, is that going to happen to me? Almost like, almost like a fear. Like it creates a fear in me because I know that this is so important to me in my life. Um, So I think it's, and it's not a conscious fear. It's a like very deep subconscious fear that creates a threat. But you're right. I think in our community, sometimes what happens is like, oh, you left our club. Well, then you're out forever. Exactly. Like you're on the blacklist. And yeah, that's definitely not welcoming or inviting to people (laughs) that may be struggling. So (laughs) 
absolutely, it's not inviting at all. I would not want to, I mean, it's at all. And so what you said is exactly right. And so I was saying this whole, like, isn't it convenient to say like, oh, you weren't vegan. It's like saying that, I mean, let's, I'll, I'll bring up, you know, the, the most horrific group of people we could think of. Let's talk about the Nazis, right? Mm-hmm. But to say the Nazis were monsters yeah. negates the fact that they are human, And that humans are capable of doing what they did. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing you're talking about. If we say that someone else could stop being vegan, then what does that mean for all of us? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for the cause itself? What does it mean for the thing called veganism? If someone else could just stop being vegan, right? And that's why I think there's the temptation to say, like we say that Nazis were monsters, it's the temptation to say, well, they weren't vegan to begin with. Yeah. And that's the mistake we make is because, no, they were, <laughs> but they struggled. And so I think you're, that's exactly at the heart of it is that we have our own fear of like what that means for us and for the larger cause. Mm. That brings me to the next question. Is there such a thing as a perfect vegan? Well, uh, yeah, I think, no, (laughs) there's no such thing as a perfect human. Once there's a perfect human, maybe then we can be perfect vegans. There's no such thing. But I do talk about the fact that, you know, I kind of playfully talk about the fact that there is such a thing as being 100% vegan, because being 100% vegan means being an imperfect vegan because we're imperfect humans. So when a 100% vegan means you know you're imperfect and you know it means doing the best you can. So the idea of like a, you know, I'm I'm not a perfect vegan, people will say, well, nobody is. I mean, nobody is. I joked last night that I've, I, I use the, I, I coined the phrase losing your veganity when you mistakenly eat an animal product <laughs> when you don't realize it. Like, oh, I lost my veganity, right? You don't reset and go back to like day one. It means that like you just, it happens. So I was at our beautiful Millennium restaurant, which is our local vegan restaurant here in Oakland. And uh, we, my husband and I were there for Valentine's day and my husband and, um, is an amazing mixologist and he makes um, what's called a rusty nail and it's uh, whiskey and drambuie. And drambuie is like the citrus kind of liqueur. And so we were at Millennium and I I said, oh, can you make a rusty nail? And they came back and they go, no, drambuie is not vegan. It has honey in it. And I was like, oh, well, this whole time I've just been drinking, you know, drinking the rusty nail. Okay. Oh, well, ha, ha, ha. Move on. We're not going to get drambuie anymore. Right. So that's just life. It's just okay. I, you know, it's not, I'm not like kosher. I'm not keeping kosher. This isn't like some perfect, like, you know, you know, religious you know, religious, like, you know, doctrine. It's, it's literally, I don't want to hurt anyone and I'm going to do the best I can. And we live in an imperfect world and there's no way to do it perfectly. But I think to your question earlier, I think that's another barrier. I think it's one of the main barriers beside the social is people do nothing if they think they have to do everything perfectly. And so they go, oh, I can't, you know, like you've heard the expression, right? I could give up everything, but I could never give up cheese. So I'm not vegan. I'm like, well, give up, everything but cheese then. And they go, wait, I can do that. I can do that. Right. It's like, yeah. Why would you do nothing at all? Because you can't do everything at once. And that kind of thinking is it's why my expression, don't do nothing because you can't do everything, do something 
anything resonates with so many people because it gives them permission to just do something and to start somewhere versus not doing anything at all. Exactly. Start where you're at. Well, I had that piece of merchandise a long time ago. <laughs> oh my gosh. With, that had the quote on there and it had the pig on the front with the different yes. parts. So I wore I wore that very proudly many oh, places. So oh, Colleen, you're amazing. You're I am amazing. so glad I've had you on this podcast. I want to go a little bit light now since we've been talking about some heavy subjects. What is your very favorite vegan meal? Oh gosh, I'm such a simple, I'm such a simpleton. I, I just love a good salad. I really do. Could, does popcorn count as a meal? Because that would be... Sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Popcorn's probably my favorite meal. I love a good salad and I... um I love a good soup. I love a just simple. I really love to, I, you know, my husband's luckily so also like that. Like we'll just make a pressure cooker pot of beans and like that's our dinner. Like I'm happy with just the most simple um, food with really good spices and really good flavors. So yeah, just really good, simple whole foods. Yeah. Yeah. Same. What's your most popular recipe? Do you know? I think the garlic and green soup, it was originally in the vegan table. And again, it's just beautiful, simple, just like a you know head of garlic with potatoes and carrots and vegetable stock and kale. It's so perfect and so simple. In fact, we're going to about have like three or four days of rain. In fact, I just see it just started. <laughs> it's time to make my garlic and green soup. I think that's um, one of the most popular savory. I think my lemon bars or my chocolate chip cookies from the Joy of Vegan Baking are probably the most popular sweet recipes. Yeah. Yum. Well, just make them all and yeah, you know, have all. a nice rainy evening at home. That sounds I great. What do you wish more people knew? I wish more people knew that people are good and it's usually not about us. It's just not whatever people are going through everyone's just trying to get by. We don't know what people are going through. If someone cuts us off, if someone, whatever, whatever, we just don't know what people are going through in their own lives. And I think if we could remember that and just completely <laughs> not think everything is about us, I think there'd be a lot more peace. Yeah, absolutely. Trying to live by those four agreement agreements and not take everything personally and know exactly that People are reacting to what's going on in their own systems. But when we take it personally and try to interpret it a certain way, that's when it begins that conflict. And it's, yeah, that's lovely. Do you have a morning routine? Oh, I'm a ridiculous. I'm so regimented. Oh, tell I'm, me. Oh, Most people I don't. Ridiculous. I want to hear this regimented really? morning. Yes, tell me about it. Oh, I'm so <laughs> I'm so rigid almost. I I'm try. I actually my work is to try and not have such a routine because I'm so routine oriented. <laughs> I love it. I wake up and I start with just some like mantras and meditations in my head. I wake up early. I love waking up at like five thirty. It's like my I love waking up before the sun's up. Start there, stretch. I, I've been inspired by my cats. They always stretch. They would never just get up and not stretch. So I stretch a little bit. Um, you know, do my morning, kind of brush my teeth, put my contact lenses in, that kind of thing, right? And then feed the cats. And then I sit down with my tea. I'm a an avid tea drinker. And with my journal and books. So I read and I write. And then I work out. And I do that for about an hour and then I shower and I'm sitting at my desk by nine 
am. Like that's, I have to, like, it's just, I like all these years I've been doing my own work. I have never worked in my pajamas. I don't work in my robe. Like I am sitting at my desk as if, you know, as if I have a boss cracking the whip, which I do. And, um, and I start my work and then I, you know, usually break at 12, 1230 for lunch and I've already planned dinner by then. So I'm usually making something toward dinner as well. Just kind of planning ahead. In the afternoon, after lunch, I usually go for a walk and then I get back to my computer and do some more writing. And then by the evening, I'm done and David and I will, you know, have our evening together. My husband, we always sit down for dinner together and I've gotten off of morning routine. But that's my morning routine. It's just, it's just very much and my it's so much so that my cats will stare at me until I sit down because they have to sit on my lap when I do my reading and my journaling so much so that they know like we are both like we're in the three of us are in sync uh, my cats and I David wakes up later than I do so he's not part of the morning routine ever <laughs> <laughs> which is ever. nice I also love having my own quiet peaceful morning routine to myself it is a nice thing that it's like self-care I feel it's a gift but, it's I, yeah. I get so excited like I get so excited to wake up because I love my morning so much so it is it's an absolute gift it's self-care I love it, I love it. thank you so much for sharing that with <laughs> us okay Colleen where can listeners connect with you and what products and services do you offer uh, joyfulvegan.com is my website. It's also my Instagram. I mean, if you want to find me at Facebook, you just have to put in my whole name, which I know is long and or, or laborious, but um, Colleen Patrick Adro over at uh, Facebook, but joyfulvegan.com. And, you know, right now, I mean, I've been doing the podcast. This is my 17th year doing my podcast, wow. Food for Thought. So, I mean, I really encourage people. I quote myself a lot because, you know, I've been talking about this stuff for a long time. So, of course, I refer people to lots of resources out there and I would really refer people to Food for Thought. It's this just so much there for to to guide people and you know i've got my books i've got i you know i i taught the online cooking classes during covid and it was it was really helpful i think people don't want to be in front of a zoom uh class anymore but i've got tons of recipes and recipe bundles and recipe packets and on demand classes that people can find in the library over at joyful vegan um dot com but i don't know watch the space i'm always just doing whatever i think is necessary and needed for people and people are looking for something in particular let me know I do one-on-one so people can always you know reach out to me with their own with their own needs but just doing my thing yeah Yeah. you're prolific you have a lot of content you have a lot of resources been in the space for a long time a lot of wisdom and experience so I definitely encourage people to head your way and see what they can learn from and like I said you've been part of my journey from the beginning and I got to see you in person at one of the vegan cruises the holistic holiday at sea one year we were together on a cruise it's I can't even remember it's been a long time haven't been haven't been back for a long time and of course there was COVID (laughs) but um yeah Yeah, so cool. Thank you so much. Okay, last question. Leave us with your number one tip for becoming a joyful vegan in a non-vegan world. My number one tip is, I think it's just that orientation. Just, just, you know, just see the good that's out there. See the good that's in you. That why would you have something special that compelled you to reflect your compassion and your behavior, but everybody else doesn't? No, <laughs> we're all built of the same stuff. And 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 see that in yourself. You know, see yourself in others and see others in yourself. And I think the more we can connect and see that there's that there's similarities and common ground, 
rather than differences. I think those are the kinds of things that will bring us together. So see the good that's out there and go seek it out, go purposefully seek it out and, and to start dwell on that a bit. And I think, I think that will just orient everyone toward a much more hopeful place. That doesn't mean we stop working. It means that we look at the success that we've had in the past to know how to keep creating successes in the future. So go look at those successes. They're out there and that can compel us forward. I love it. That's such a beautiful message. Colleen Patrick Goudreau, thank you for all your work. I appreciate you so much. I'm grateful for your presence and for everything that you've given us. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Oh, thank you so much. What an honor. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Hey, veggie lover, I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.